15% are secretly recording what we do. You know, I, it is a different world we live in. Anytime you take snippets of any visit, you can make it, you can turn it into anything you want. We don't even know what a wiretapping is anymore. They don't tap wires. This is like, the, this is fiber optics, and these are electrons flying through the sky here. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry on the Skype line. Uh, little Ricky is monitoring us from uh, Monrovia, California. Uh, Greg, there's a bunch of stuff that is coming up. Before we get into this issue, I would like to uh, acknowledge, first of all, you're going to Greece next week to be uh, the keynote at uh, some society over there. Yes, the European Society of Emergency Medicine, which is a big organization. This is 30-some countries, and I'm looking forward to it. And as my wife said, I've got another continent fooled. <laughs> and uh, so they're, uh, they're inviting me to speak. And uh, although my wife is a cynic about these things, she is going along with me. You know, funny, when I go to Chillicothe, Ohio to speak, she doesn't go with me. You go to Athens, Greece, she's there. Well, you know, I think there is some subtle differences. The other thing is I wanted to thank you for your participation last week at the, the Advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camp course for the PAs, NPs, and primary care doctors out there uh, who were uh, with us in Washington, D.C. It was, uh, I thought that there was this magic, there was this enthusiasm, passion that uh, came across from the people in the audience. The faculty was great, and you, as always, Hit it out of the park. Well, listen, I, I uh, have been doing this for 42 years, and I agree with you. Some meetings, you just sense that uh, people are into it, and a lot of people want to come and talk to you. They want to debate the issues. I thought it was a terrific meeting, Rick, and you've, you and uh, Diane Birnbaumer put together a great program there, and I'm just pleased and proud to be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, we, we uh, are going to do three more coming up in 2018. Oh, actually, our biggest one is December of this year. Uh, those of you who are PAs, uh, pardon me, uh, emergency physicians, send your PAs and NPs to this meeting. It's in December. We're going to have about 700 people. This is what we call our, our original meeting. There is a also a, an optional hands-on uh, course the day before. All of it's on the, our website, ccme.org. That's enough of the commercial, don't you think? Yeah, that's uh, that's self-promotion at a very high level. Let's move on to real stuff. Oh, uh, just a one quickie, one, one quickie. Tomorrow, yeah. is a, September 22nd, I think is the first day of fall. It is also the day that Mel Herbert announces the uh, amalgamation of emergency medical abstracts with MRAP. Uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, Jerry Hoppin's going to be there. They're flying Ken Milne all the way from Ontario to be there. And uh, it should be kind of an interesting, interesting show. Uh, and I have nothing further to say. Okay, very good. And uh, remember, if Ken Milne's coming in from Ontario this time of year, uh, he probably is doing it by sled dog and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's cold there. You understand that sort of thing. All right, listen, the first paper that we're, we're about to do, we have never in our 11 years ever done a paper like this, and I think it is absolutely terrific. And it deals with the uh, idea of patients surreptitiously recording you. 
It's entitled, Can Patients Make Recordings of Medical Encounters? It's done by a uh, physician and another person who's a PhD and another person who's a lawyer, all out of Dartmouth. This was in JAMA, August 8th, 2017. Very, very current information. Well, it's not only current, it's frightening, Rick. (laughs) You bet. (laughs) Well, here are the key points, and you hop in here whenever you want. First of all, there's a British study by way of introduction that found that 15% of surveyed patients had secretly recorded a clinic visit. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> 15% are secretly recording what we do. You know, I it is a different world we live in. I, I think it's unfortunate. And anytime you take snippets of any visit, you can make it, you can turn it into anything you want. I actually think this is frightening information. Well, obviously, it's a British study. We don't know. There are all these details about is is, is it extrapolatable to the U.S., et cetera. But yeah. it, it, it's, it, it's, it sets the pace. Here's another one. A review found 33 studies involving auto re, uh, audio recording of clinic visits. I would have never guessed that such a literature even existed. Nope. Here's one I thought was really interesting. The Barrow Neurologic Institute in Phoenix routinely offers video recordings of their visits. Is that where they treat barrow trauma, Rick? <laughs> no, doctor. No, doctor. Night try. Participating physicians get a 10% reduction in their malpractice premium and an additional $1 million in liability coverage. Is that interesting or what? Yeah, if you're willing... Let's give this a, a second here. This is the Barrow Neurologic Institute. These are people who are going to a secondary or actually a tertiary center, Rick, to get opinions on neurologic disease, which, as you know, no one can treat or make better anyway. How do you, how do you commit malpractice on somebody who's got a long-established neurologic disease? I don't think you can do it. It's not humanly possible. Uh, but... But thanks for the information. Now, regarding the laws concerning recordings, let's just point a few things out here. They're inconsistent. Sometimes it's allowed and sometimes it's illegal. The states of the United States, there are 39 of the 50 states where you can have single party recordings, which are considered legal. That means only one of the two people, uh, two parties, has to know what's going on. If neither of the two parties know what's going on, you've got to get a warrant for that. That's the police department that's doing that sort of thing. Now, the other states, which include California and Florida and Michigan, both people have to know that it's going on for that to be legal. But this is a hodgepodge at this point, Rick, and there's no consistency. I think our listeners ought to at least know what the laws are in their state about secret recordings of uh, interactions between two people. Well, I do, I do think it would be good if we could just list the 11 states because these are the all-party states. Both people have to agree, and they're in the minority. California, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Michigan, Massachusetts, Montana, New Hampshire, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. In all of the other states, only one party has to agree. So if you're getting into saying to people, this is against the law, well, uh, you uh, may likely be wrong if you don't know this. The other thing is that this article had some 
details on some of these states in terms of some exceptions. They they make a distinction between telephone call recording and other kinds of recordings in some cases, but you need to know that it's out there. Yeah, by uh, the way, in all states where where uh, there is a duty to inform, uh, they will very often start the recordings by saying, this is being recorded, and they always say the same thing, for quality purposes. But, right. uh, but what they're really doing there is letting you know that, yes, this is, this is being taken down, and it's going to be used in some way, shape, or form. Uh, this all stems from the rules on wiretapping. Right. Uh, but I think that, you know, we don't even know what a wiretapping is anymore. They don't tap wires. This is like, uh, this is fiber optics and these are electrons flying through the sky here. They say, uh, wiretapping, which is an extrapolation of this, it's a felony. The aggrieved party can seek compensation for harm, attorney's fees and costs. They also point out that the uh, dissemination of the recording may result in an additional violation. You put up this uh, recording on the internet and you're, you're making fun of a doctor kind of thing. The recording may not be used as evidence in court if uh, it is violated the rules of the state in terms of having both parties agree to be recorded. This is a distinction now between single party and uh, all party uh, states. In single party states, places where only one person has to agree, patients are allowed to record. However, clinicians can ask the patient not to do it and can terminate the visit. The authors, however, specifically do not address the ED setting and the EMTALA mandates. So if you're in a clinic, you can say, uh, we're not going any further. We're done here unless you put this thing off. It would be really interesting to know the nuances in a ER where we don't necessarily have the option, given the fact that we are mandated to do a medical screening exam. I guess once the medical screening exam is over and it is determined that a medical emergency in the world or in the world of HICVA does not exist, then you can say this visit is over unless you uh, unless you continue unless you stop that recording. Yeah, would you agree? I, would you agree? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. The problem is in the emergency setting. This is not top of an emergency physician's list. We don't know that it's going on. When's the last time you actually asked somebody, are you recording this visit? I, I don't think I've ever done it. I did have one visit, one time, where a guy came in. There was another gentleman in a suit with him. It's always a key tip-off. And I just uh, introduced myself and said, who are you? I thought it was a family member. He says, I'm his attorney. Uh, and basically, this guy wasn't in extremis or anything. And I, I said, uh, I, would, I would like you to leave the room. And the patient said, no, I have a right to have somebody in here with me. This is who I choose. Now, it never came down. They never came down to suing me. But it was an uncomfortable situation for all parties involved. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And right. I think one of the things that physicians want to know is what are their rights and how can we uh, avoid being recorded in a non-confrontational manner? Right. It, it, you don't want to start a fight by the same token. You don't necessarily want things going on because things are said. People come in the room, out of the room, 
who is this referring to? Those sorts of questions come up. In conclusion here, clinicians, advocacy groups, policymakers kind of work together to develop guidelines and regulatory guidance on patient recordings. Uh, healthcare continues to make some strides toward transparency, but that because you've gotten every word doesn't mean you've got the meaning of what happened in the event. Now, uh, this is it is not uncommon that in teaching programs, there is, vis there is video recording of codes, of traumas, of things like that to be used for teaching purposes. But that's virtually always done in a structured program where they're kept for only a certain amount of time and then they are by policy destroyed. Well, actually, that's, that's interesting because at USC, they used to have cameras behind what they know as Booth C. This is where all the really nasty yes. cases come in. Yes. Uh, they took those down. Joel Geiderman, who you know, uh, and I think we refer to a paper that he did about a month or two ago regarding um, observers in the emergency department. Yes, Joel was did. one of the Joel was one of the first people to say, "Hey, listen, I'm really concerned about having cameras up there shooting at people who have not agreed to be uh, filmed." And he, yeah, the the intentions are good, education and, and the like, but fundamentally, you're uh, attacking this person's privacy. It, uh, they're in a compromised position, and you can, in fact not go after the fact and ask for their permission. Uh, that's what was generally done. Uh, but that really is, according to Joel, not really uh, kosher to do that. They also point out that when you're recording a video, that it is inadequate to fuzz out the patient's picture, uh, uh, the, the face, and, and, and say that is, in fact, also protecting their privacy which you often see done and you see also the this done when they fuzz out license plates in uh, these reality type shows or news shows in yes. any case you now know that there are some laws about this there are some differences in states and uh, you may or may not uh, be too happy about what your state's position is on this i believe that there should be a prominent sign in the emergency department along the wall when they're coming in saying, for the privacy of our patients, we allow no recording. Yeah, that I think way, that would be the that would be the way to go. And and uh, can you necessarily enforce that? Don't know, but at least it sends the message that it is the policy of the institution. <clears throat> All right. Uh, speaking of. Uh, uh, a bad news getting down the pike, uh, and M. Tala being part of our bad news, our colleague at EP Monthly in the September 2017 issue, Bill Sullivan, who's both a doc and a lawyer, reported on a case from Urgent Care Medicine in which a Rhode Island U.S. District Court judge ruled that M. Tala requirements may apply to urgent care facilities. Uh, the reference on this is Frederick versus South County Hospital Healthcare at L, U.S. District Court, Rhode Island, the number CA 
number 14-353 for those of you who are looking these things up. And what this really was, was a woman who'd come into an urgent care with burning chest pain, texted her co-workers that she was leaving to get checked out for a heart attack. She was diagnosed at the urgent care clinic with GERD, <clears throat> given a GI cocktail and discharged. Oh my God, this person needs to listen to our previous uh, things for the last 11 years. She died the following day. Her estate claimed, among other things, that the urgent care center failed to provide a medical screening exam. Now, the, med the urgent care clinic still had to stand for common negligence, but is it truly an Amtala case as well? The clinic argued that it was not uh it was not a dedicate it was not a dedicated emergency department so Amtala didn't apply rick what do you think well this is a uh, a broad ranging question fortunately the decision here is limited to Rhode Island but they often look at precedents in other states to use make their own judgments they cite I other states all the time. So it's never good to have this on the record. So here's what they said. The court said Amtala may apply. Now we're using Bill's words and I, I don't know that whether it was more direct or not. CMS rules state that quote, most urgent care centers will meet the revised definition of dedicated emergency department for purposes of Amtala. Did you know there was a revised yes, definition yes, I, of Amtala? I've heard this, and I'm very glad that Bill brought this up because uh, everything depends on ownership, how they bill. There are all kinds of things that tie you uh, to the MTALA question. Now, the real question is, most people set up uh, urgent care clinics and walk-in clinics, that sort of thing associated with a hospital, so they can financially screen these people. Does this mean now that everybody gets to go to a walk-in or an urgent care and they can't financially screen? I mean, I don't think we know what all these things mean yet. And uh, this is not this is not a small issue. Because well, it, it, as go going ahead. further, the court noted that the clinic, quote, deliberately used the word urgent in naming the urgent slash walk-in care, uh, care clinic. It could have simply said it's a walk-in clinic. The well, this is said, semantic. Rick, this is semantics at a very high level. People seek care for their indigestion and chest pain at their internist's office, at their family practice doctor's office. Because the word urgent is there, it is equivalent to emergency department. I mean, that's, that's a little stretch, in my opinion, but... Who knows? Furthermore, the court said, quote, it would be difficult for any individual in need of emergency care to distinguish between a hospital department that provides care for an urgent need and one that provides care for an emergency medical condition need. And, you know, there is this has been a recurring issue. Uh, urgent care freestanding emergency departments, emergency departments, and the confusion that exists between which one do I go into? 
And the, they're basically saying laymen are not particularly good at picking the right ones. Well, I think that's probably true. Uh, although I do think most people realize when you feeling really bad, when you got that sense you're about to die, that's why they call ambulances and go to emergency department. But with regard to the legal lessons here, Bill points out that hospital-based urgent care clinics may have an Amtala duty to stabilize and transfer. Probably no disagreement there from us. No. Determination of Amtala violations are made retrospectively, and the ruling only applies, this ruling applies to Rhode Island. But if you don't think we aren't going to hear this, and particularly in states where where freestanding emergency departments are starting to grow like weeds, uh, this is going to be a plaintiff's approach to this problem, and we should keep that in mind. Clinicians should be aware if your contract has an identification clause in it. Indemnification. Yes, it has an indemnification clause in it that states that you have to pay any fines and damages that the hospital incurs uh, you could be in deep doo-doo here. Uh, and and again, that's why people have to have these things looked at by the uh, by their attorney. And yep. Tala fines uh, can be can be big. They can be a problem. So you need to think about this when you accept uh, a job and look and see what the malpractice policy says. Well, you know, they he's talking about people getting these clauses snuck into their working contracts. And he points out that the hospital could say, you're responsible to pay for this fine. But more importantly, because the fine is, you know, 25,000, 50,000, something like that. But more importantly, he said that hospital could also now nail you for damages. Right. Now, damages are the thing that could kill you. That's the stuff that could take your house, your savings, the whole thing, theoretically, because the hospital basically can say, as a result of this um, talent investigation and you, us being shut down for two weeks here, it cost us $80 bajillion. Now, I, I think that that is a bit of a stretch, to be candid. However, I think it probably is good advice to see whether you have anything in your work contract that relates to this because it is potentially very dangerous. Well, I, I, I wrote uh, I wrote these policies for two insurance companies, and the bottom line is most doctors never take the time to read what's in a policy. Nobody reads their homeowner's policy until the fire truck arrives and is putting out the fire. Uh, Doc should probably do this. So, Rick, you got another case here? Yeah, I do. This is uh, from a uh, an in, an internet site that is called MPR. I looked all around for what did MPR mean. I have no idea yeah. what MPR means, but it was written by a lawyer, Ann Latner, and it was uh, September 11, 2007. I think if you have that 17, information, seventeen. Right? Oh, seven, two thousand. Yes, two thousand seventeen. All very very current information, as you'll <laughs> right. notice. Hey. It's entitled uh, Third Party Sues Clinician for Failing to Warn Patient Not to Drive. We've talked about these in uh, in the past, so we don't spend a lot of time on this. This is basically about a 72-year-old man who was seeing a family doctor. He had a lot of medical problems, 
COPD, hypertension, the asbestosis, and lung cancer. And uh, one morning, the patient got into his car, passed out, jumped the curb, hit a nine-year-old boy walking to school and killed him. The uh, patient was unharmed. He went, was taken to the hospital, checked out of the hospital before they could find out what caused this person to lose their consciousness. And uh, subsequently, because of the stress of this uh, accident and his underlying illnesses, he died. Yeah, uh, I would so- ask it. I would ask everyone who's uncertain as to the third-party duties to check. We've referenced this multiple times in the past. This is duty to an unnamed but predicted third party. After all, they didn't know this kid was going to be there at that moment. But what we did know, or should have known, I guess, is that there would be somebody walking down a street somewhere that this guy might take out. Um, This is a difficult question for emergency medicine because I understand when we give out medications, when we patch an eye, which, by the way, is just about gone out of style now, but when we do these various things, we understand that, that that's our action. To say that the patient, because of their chest pain, because of their history of, of heart disease, should not be behind the wheel, uh, and we can be held responsible for that, I think that's extremely difficult. You know, the state is very slow to take away driver's licenses. Um, my 98-year-old uh, mother-in-law still drives. Uh, now we've convinced her uh, in two months uh, on her next birthday to give up that license. But um, I don't want to see emergency docs get put in the, in the position where we have to start going through a list of diseases to decide who we can let out the door uh, because they still drive. Well, you can envision this family. They're really uh, aggr- uh, aggrieved. Right. They, they, they feel compelled to take some kind of action. The family of the boy who was killed sues the family physician, uh, alleging that he uh, should, not, should have warned the patient about the medications he was taking and the potential for them to cause drowsiness or some other kind of uh, condition that would have resulted in a loss of consciousness. A motion for summary judgment was initially approved, which is hard to conceive of, but subsequently overturned. The chief judge- the court of appeals, right. Yeah, the chief judge said, a physician owes a duty of reasonable care to everyone foreseeably put at risk by his failure to warn of the side effects of his treatment of a patient. Uh, Uh, Did you read the list of things she came up with, though, that said- the warning stickers on pill bottles don't negate the duty of clinicians to warn patients as well. Yeah, this and is I, our, our author, uh, Ms. Latner, the attorney. Right. And, uh, and, when, and when she says when writing renewals, the same duty applies. Now, again, this may be a long way from the emergency department, but... Uh, we need, and, and she suggests that there be a documentation of the conversation and be vigilant in the elderly. Rick, that includes you and I now. You understand uh, Who are you that? talking about, Willis? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Well, you'd never be dangerous in a car, Rick, so it's okay. And uh, and so we uh, we need to need to think about some of these things when we're letting people out the door. Hey, listen, writing renewals is not that uncommon, particularly in the urgent care setting where people come <laughs> in and say, "I'm passing through town" or something like that, and can you give me this, that, and the other thing? And right. soon as your na- soon as your name is on that prescription, you are responsible for that prescription. Uh, uh, which is there's a little obviously risk in there because you're you may be writing for drugs that you are unfamiliar with, uh, blood pressure drugs, cholesterol drugs, other kinds of drugs that may have a potential for problems that you are not uh, aware of. Just as a review for our listeners, if you pull a PDR off the shelf or bring it up online, there's about six, maybe seven thousand different drugs and dosages in all of those pages that sit there. That's probably four to six times bigger than the one in Germany. It's 10 times bigger than the one in England. But when you really come down to it, most of us know and write for about 30 drugs. It's rare that you're really facile with the complications, side effects, all these various things with the dosages of these drugs. I try and avoid whenever I can writing any sort of long-term renewal of medications because, quite frankly, I don't know those drugs that well. Greg, there's a third paper that I want to do. It's entitled, Errors in Diagnosis of Spinal Epidural Abscess in the Era of the Electronic Medical Record. This is by Dr. Blyes et al., American yeah. Journal of Medicine, August 2017. Now, we have talked about this topic uh, ad nauseum, but this paper has some uh, really startling information about uh, the sources of errors through this retrospective look by two doctors at um, these VA records that occurred over about a one-year period. I think it was 2013. By way of preamble... They say that they have they have found two other emergency department studies that looked at the, uh, the spinal epidural abscesses that were delayed in their diagnosis. Delay in diagnosis occurred in 75% of the cases in one study and 84% of the cases in another. Uh, is- uh, 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 be very careful when you say that it's that it's below the standard of care. I, did, you, did you hear the word standard? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. <laughs> but we have to point out, yeah, they say there's a delayed diagnosis. Uh, there's There comes a point when it's obvious to everyone. There's a comes a point when nobody can diagnose it. And uh, that 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 area in between there is variable. And well, I, I agree, we, we, we should pick these things up, and we've presented these things ad nauseum, but those are the cases that have findings. I think there's going to be people out there who for weeks may have discomfort and not one positive physical finding. Well, those, according to this paper, that's not the case. According to this paper, these electronic medical records told the tale much often before the physicians put the pieces together. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is a uh, retrospective. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, Emergency yeah. Medical Record Review. 119 cases seen in the VA 
2014. They were looking for red flags and missed opportunities to make the diagnosis in a timely manner. Uh, the red flags were based on the uh, Merck College of Radiology's appropriateness criteria for patients with chronic back pain. Uh, here we go. Well, let's Six do. Let's look at the the missed red flags here. Unexplained fever. Now, if someone came in and had no back pain and had a no, 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 no. All these people have back pain. They well, all have. You got to have them, right? Um, focal neurodeficits that are progressing or disabling. This is the place where people aren't listening. The patient will tell you the diagnosis. In fact, I even have cases where I've been the expert where the nurse picked up the numbness and the doctor never even asked about it uh, when they saw the patient. So we had two different histories sitting there on that chart. Uh, go back Go back one. The uh, That's why these guys think these are clear-cut errors because they have nurses' notes that they're looking at. They have other kinds of documentation that is allowing them them to feel relatively comfortable that these mistakes are made. So number one, 86% fever. You got to check the, the, the box. In, yeah. in the day of the paper record, we would say circle the temperature on all the back pain patients. Circle the temperature so that you are have made it clear that you have acknowledged that this person does not have a fever. You can't do that in electronic medical record. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. Uh, but the but the next three are obvious. If they have an active infection, if they have a port, if they're immunologically suppressed and they've got back pain, and now there's more people than ever who are immunologically suppressed. If you watch television at night, there are 10 different ads every night for a something or other amab which is to treat it's an it, something to suppress the inflammatory system of the body. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, the, these drugs are, are for psoriasis, uh, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis. Those are the things that you see on, on television, but there are others. And you're right. These drugs selectively suppress inflammatory systems more or less selectively. Obviously, these people, they always say, make sure your doctor checks you for TB before you start on these drugs because you are on an immunosuppressant. Uh, one of the things I would like to point out is this idea of an active infection. 82% of the people had an active infection, but that infection can be anywhere. It can be a tooth. It can be a bladder infection. It could be a cellulitis or a, or a, a little boil on your, on your butt. Yeah, well, well, statistically, that blood eventually flows everywhere, Rick, and some of those bacteria are going to head to our, our nidus uh, where it's going to be a problem. Prolonged steroid use, I think, is obvious. Here's some that I think are tougher to pick up. Only 20% of them had unexplained weight loss. Now, exactly what the relationship between sp a spinal epidural abscess and weight loss is, I'm not sure. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought the same thing. What these things are, are the radiology department's recommendations for red flags, but it doesn't necessarily mean solely for spinal epidural abscess. It could be mean for cancer, you know, uh, so 
It's not just infection. It could be it could be other bad things. We think that you should do imaging when people have any of these nasty things. Right. Is what they're saying, not just for SEA. The other thing that I think is we, we need to remember is back pain duration more than six weeks. If these people have been looked at and somebody shot a, f- a plain film, plain film never answers the question in these cases. If you're repeating a plain film, the emergency department on these folks, you've wasted your time. Go right to the study that answers the question, the MRI. CT does not answer the question. The MRI answers the question. And so if they fall into these categories, shoot the film that that they're willing to operate on, and that's the film. Well, that's the the point of the last of the red flags that they mentioned. 14% of the people in this um, Miss Flag Miss Red Flag scenario had a, a history of cancer. Now, in fifty-eight percent of the patients, the clinicians noted the red flags, but not, but not, did, but did not take any action on them. Yeah, the patient's got a fever, but I'm not going to do anything. You know, that was the killer. Yeah, in yeah. A, in a third, the providers missed the red flags during their initial. Uh, history and physical examination. So there are two things. You either missed it or you found it, but you didn't do anything about it. Not you know, good. the CPR was uh, the CPR uh, was up and the SED rate uh, only 27% of the time on the first visit. As far as I'm concerned, you can cross those off the list because there are so many people who have, for other reasons, suppressed the CPR. If you've got a history of drug use and back pain, CPR to me doesn't make a decision as to hey, listen. they're going to get a study. <laughs> Greg, you are having a little stroke right now. You mentioned CPR three times. It's it's CRP. Oh, CRP. CRP. And, li- yeah. and listen, and the other thing is only a quarter of them had a SED rate or CRP measured. And we know that if you were going to ask for one blood test in the setting of suspected epidural abscess, it is a, it, these things are up in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases. And these people didn't even think to order them because this diagnosis just blew right over their head. Right. But if it's up or down, if they have two out of the three back pain and a fever and they're a drug shooter, are you not going to get the study, Rick? No, I, I got it. Well, speaking yeah. of studies, catch this. <laughs> Although a quarter had an MRI ordered, in all of the cases, it was marked as non-urgent and resulted in a six-day delay in making the diagnosis. While when they marked it as urgent, it, it added one day. So they got the MRI done in one day if they checked the urgent box. Non-urgent, six days. Why would you ever order a non-urgent MRI in people who had these red flags? It's like... Well, you like, think if that's in the differential? Yeah, if that's in the differential, come on, give me a break here. Uh, would you want to go home thinking, well, in six days I'm going to find out whether I've got pus pushing on my spinal cord? I just think that that's that's sort of inexcusable. And uh, you know, once you've purchased the MRI machine, it ought to be working seven days a week, uh, twenty four hours a day. Um, we need to relook at the cost of this because the uh, the charges are ridiculous. It is the study of choice in a lot of things, 
And, uh, you know, it's waiting around for six days on a suspected epidural abscess. How would you defend that in court? I don't understand the thinking there. You, you, you'd be trashed. What about the uh, consequences of this, these misses? Most diagnostic errors were associated with, associated with temporary harm lasting less than a one year. Two-thirds of the cases lasted less than one year. I, I don't think that's so temporary for crying out loud. Yeah, if you can't pee for one year, that's not a good thing. But the magnitude of harm was serious in 60% of the cases and contributed to death in 12%. So these were not trivial um, mistakes. The conclusion, quote, striking evidence of deficiencies in the diagnostic evaluation of spinal epidural abscess and back pain patients, unquote. Yeah, absolutely. then the solution, the solution, <laughs> augmentation of basic clinical skills. It's like you got to teach the people how to make this diagnosis. It's, it's one of the problems where we have a uncommon diagnosis. And because it's an uncommon diagnosis, people may not become aware of it. And although it's an uncommon diagnosis, it's a very serious diagnosis. It's, the, it's, it's a setup for error. Well, at the advanced boot camp course, I asked that question on my neuro exam talk. And I said, how many people here have been asked to see a patient in the last two months with low back pain who still had their shoes, socks, and pants on? 90% of the hands went up. You know, there is such a thing as blocking and tackling, which are pretty damn simple. And to uh, not correctly examine these people is to is to... Put yourself out there at risk. Do it right. Uh, if they have sensation loss, you'll never know it if their shoes and socks and pants are still on. All right, Rick. Let's do, do a you, few letters. Yeah, okay. What do you have? All right. And then we can go back and do a bunch of cases because, you know, I got six months of cases backed up here. Uh, first one is a gentleman who uh, writes in, and uh, it's Chris uh, Slusher who says, I got the answer to your wine quiz last month with the first hint. Well, that's very good. Matus, as he says, was one of my go-to wines in college. The empty bottle would be displayed on the top of my cinder block and plywood bookcase. And uh, he also recommends, by the way, uh, a very good wine that he found at Costco and uh, called The Prisoner. Uh, more information on wines uh, at the end of the show, but I'm glad somebody is paying attention to our trip down memory lane with old wines. Boy, that's really uh, brings back a memory. We had, Diane and I had a cinder block and uh, plywood. It wasn't, wasn't plywood, it was uh, one by uh, one by 12. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, Exactly. I stained the one by 12 and we had cinder blocks. And here's the, here's the wackiest thing. When I went into the Indian health service, uh, they, they move you. And so they moved all my cinder blocks (laughs) to Arizona, (laughs) Arizona, the cost to move those cinder blocks to Arizona. I could have probably bought a small house in Arizona. Yeah, I'm sure you could have, Rick. All right, the next letter from uh, from Chip Potter, who's a friend of ours, has written for many years. He asked this question, how many emergency physicians are leaving the front lines and working in freestanding emergency departments? 
Uh, he obviously has a thing about this. Uh, I, I want to take another view of this, uh, Chip. Well, what's his, what's his, what's his, what's his beef? Well, his beef is uh, we, we're, the, everybody's bailing out. ERs are being abandoned. We don't have enough qualified people. Uh, all these uh, freestanding emergency departments are in rich areas of cities. Yada, yada, yada. Guys get tired of working afternoon shifts. They get tired of working midnights. They get tired of working Christmas. I mean, uh, what's what's going on here? And all I can say is whether you like it or not, Chip, uh, I think that patients uh, and doctors together are moving some of this business out of the emergency department. You know, we we have Rick's from the Indian Health Service. He remembers uh, being called man who speak with forked tongue. Well, emergency docs have been speaking with a forked tongue for years. We say, we're overcrowded. We're this, we're that. Well, you know what? When they then leave and they go to other places, now we're all unhappy about it. All those paying customers took off. You know what? There's going to be a redistribution of where people are seen. And I think emergency docs... This is a normal maturation of their life. You know, Rick and I have friends who all say, because when they went to urgent cares, that sort of thing, and I said, uh, well, you sorry about it? They said they should have done it 10 years earlier. And um, I think that that really is the case. We d- I don't think we have really good data on how many people have left specifically to do these other things, but we know it's going on, and as we age, we are the first group, Rick and I, were the first group, the first year to ever take the board in emergency medicine. Those people, if they're still practicing, are moving into other settings. And to think we're not going to do that is crazy. You know, there's a few academics who see, you know, four patients a week uh, with the residents. And they say, well, they're still working in ERs. No, they're not. They're not working 16, 17 shifts a month in a uh, non-academic place where that's hard work. It's real hard work, and we're going to see this. Hey, listen, uh, I can just see the letters coming in from the academics now. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Jerry Hoffman and I over the years had a fair number of disagreements, some of them more vociferous than others. Yes, but, I remember, yeah. But the by far the most vociferous uh, argument that we had was when I suggested that working in academia was not nearly the same as working in a community hospital. He went berserko over that. Um, I, 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 I stand my position, frankly, but, uh, it, when you're a single doctor covered ER, that's, uh, that's admitting 20% and, and, um, seeing 60, uh, patients a day, it's not quite the same as being in the um, academic emergency department setting. No, the toughest job in the world is being in uh, South Dakota in a small town, being the only doc, no PA, no NP, no scribe, and no stimulation from other people. And to, to do it right each and every time in that situation I commend them. This is very well, listen, hard work. To, to, to decrease the number of letters that we are get, going to be getting, these are two different jobs. One job is to teach 
residents to become really good emergency physicians. And the other job is to move the meat uh, in a, in a evidence-based pro-patient way. Uh, they're, they're, they're not this necessarily the same. Some people can do both, but many people cannot. Let's look. Oh, uh, Chris, uh, Slusher gets a twofer this this month. He 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 just listened to um, our last issue, and he had a question brought up as to who does the defense lawyer really represent. Uh, and then he goes on to present a case, and it, it's fairly involved. But I'll just tell you this: the defense lawyer is paid. His check comes from the insurance company. Now, everyone I've ever met has said, no, I'm really there to take care of the physician. But there's no question that there is some pressure. And it's not beyond uh, the pale for the emergency doc to talk to that attorney. And when, they, when they're advocating settlement, when they're advocating this or that, and find out what the real pressures are to get this done. Now, Docs have to understand that there are reasonable reasons to settle. And the last thing you want is somebody who doesn't settle and you lose above the limits of your malpractice. That's not a good thing. But I think we, we need to give the lawyers, the defense lawyers, a little bit of the break. Um, they are, they have to stay in business for the next 30 years doing cases. And if they're not at least respected by the insurance companies, they don't have work to do. They got to go do wills, trusts, and estates. Well, 11 years ago, when we started this thing, we made it very clear that this defense was not about your honor. Yes. It's, 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 it's about dollars. It's about dollars. And you can understand that. And we see the cases where physicians become very stubborn and say, no, 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 I want to try this. I want to try this. When they really don't really understand the risks, they think it is basically a matter of right or wrong and honor when it's just business, just right. business. Exactly. I, as I always used to tell the docs, I said, if you want to defend your honor, get a gun or a rapier. Uh, if you want to defend your financial base for the rest of your life, you know, you do that with an insurance policy. And uh, there are sometimes intelligent reasons uh, to use it. Uh, interesting uh, uh, case to comment on here, Rick. Supreme Court, and this is hot off the presses, June 30, 2017, um, an article written up by Lauren Rulli, uh an attorney. And it says, Pennsylvania Supreme Court rules that only physicians, not their staff, can obtain informed consent. Now, this is actually a big deal because everybody who's busy in medicine, uh, surgeons, this, that, and other thing, sends somebody in to carry on a better conversation than they can do with the patient and get the consent for, uh, sign formed. This decision says you can send somebody in to show them the video of their of their surgery that's coming up to do this and that, but the actual obtaining of the signature should be done by the physician so that the patient has the right to ask questions. 
What do you think about that, Rick? You know, actually, I saw that, and I don't recall where. Do you have the citation for where you're re- reading that from? Uh, this was this was actually sent to us an email to to you uh, both you and no and uh, somebody else. But the the case is Chanel S H I N A L versus Tom's, and this is in uh, June uh, twenty. 2017, a 4-3 decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Well, I guess it relates to Pennsylvania. It's a, Again, this is not necessarily uh, going to mean that it applies to everybody else. But I, I agree that this should be the case. Uh, I have seen situations where uh, non-physicians... Uh, go in and ask for consents, and they kind of and I and I think it certainly was much more common in the past, particularly the distant past, where it was just kind of like knee jerk. Uh, the nurse would go in, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. It was a gallbladder. It was going to be some an appendix, something pretty straightforward. But I agree fully with this decision. Uh, that's the this is the least you can do is to talk to the person about the procedure. And we, we've gone over this a bajillion times. You have to present to them alternatives uh, and alternatives on the alternatives. And what if we do nothing? The pros and cons of all of these options. And that is uh, what must be done. And so you can't delegate this. If you're the surgeon, you've got to do it. You cannot delegate. You can have, you're exactly right. You can have somebody go in and augment and, 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 and explain more and answer more questions and say, well, here's how what's going to happen in the day of surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the, obtaining the consent, that's the surgeon's job. All right. In fact, oh, I did, I did find the, uh, Note on this: the entry was posted uh, June 30 on in uh, in uh, blog Healthcare Law Litigation and then Med Law, um, and these were uh, uh, three different places it was posted. And uh, we referenced the gal who wrote this. It's at least worth looking at because if somebody and this happens, somebody will call you up and say. I'm coming in to do that kid's appendix. Go in and get their uh, get their consent. You know what? Maybe we shouldn't be doing that for the surgeons. Maybe that should be done by the surgeon who's actually going to do the procedure. Yeah, there's. I don't think there's any question. Yeah. Got anything else for us there, Chief? Oh, of course we do. We got some interesting stuff. And, you know, I have a weird hobby. I read all kinds of medical legal cases that aren't even emergency medicine. But there's a couple that have come up in the last few months under the psych, uh, in the psychiatric realm. Uh, and as you know, psych people are sued for two things suicide and sex with their patients. Now, I can't take care of the one, but it's interesting. Failure to monitor leads to suicide and death. This is a $3.25 million Illinois decision, but it had to do with the way they monitored the patient and the room they put the patient in. I hope all emergency docs know that hinges on doors are not universal. Uh, 
there is such a thing as a 45 degree slant non-hangable hinge where you cannot put a cord uh, something you've torn from the bed that sort of thing and the basis of this particular case had to be the room that they used uh, did not have that sort of hinge so the patient hung themselves on the door hinge I would ask our own people to do this in your emergency department you ought to have a couple of rooms that are close to the desk that are easily seen and you ought to decide what's going to be in that room that they could kill themselves with everybody knows to take shoelaces and belts and all these other sorts of things but they can't hang themselves unless they got something to hang themselves on so uh, this this uh, psych- psychiatric case is a reflection of a half a dozen others I've seen in the last year, which had to do with inappropriate hinges on the doors in the room where they were being uh, observed. Wow! 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 I can I would be willing to bet that nobody has these uh, hinges that don't allow cords to be suspended from them. But you have to remember, too, that when we have these patients in the emergency department, we're required to have sitters, uh, actually trained sitters. It it can't just be uh, any Tom, Dick, and Harry kind of thing. And the Joint Commission also requires periodic monitoring of these people with regards to their well-being to make sure that there's nothing going on with them. So I don't think it's necessarily the same However, uh, you do bring up something that I certainly was not aware of, that that the hinges matter. Yeah, the hinges do matter, and there's a specific kind you can get. Uh, Funny thing is, general hospitals don't talk about it very much. Psych hospitals talk about this all the time, and they've, uh, they've basically taken care of the problem. Another psych case, which is referenced right back to the emergency department, there was a suicide and there was a failure to report suicide plans to a family and authorities. Now, the defense in this case said uh, the hospital person who had done the interview, who knew that the patient, that she was planning on killing herself, basically said, well, this was between the patient and myself. Uh, I didn't feel I had the right to release a confidence. Now, everybody agrees that there needs to be a certain degree of privacy, but when there is a clear and present danger of harm, uh, this is what the Tarasov case in California was all about, that the psychiatrist at UCLA did not notify um, a, a third party, the family of Ms. Tarasoff or the Los Angeles Police Department, that he said he was planning on both raping and killing Susan Tarasoff. Uh, this gal, again, she was a social worker, actually, uh, did not tell anyone about the plans. The patient went out and killed themselves. They sued the hospital uh, for failure to uh, notify. Now, I I don't know whether this is good news or bad news, but the defense won in that case. Hmm. But I don't think it's a universal type decision presented by the right attorney quoting from Tarasoff 
even though it's a California decision, I think you could have problems. But obviously, there's no winners in lawsuits. The hospital went through uh, uh, the uh, court, they, the trial, they had to go to the appellate court, all the other things that went along here. But um, you know what? If you think somebody is genuinely at harm, uh, it, it could kill themselves, let somebody know. Uh, I, I don't think an emergency doc is ever sued. I've never seen the case, Rick, in 42 years of doing this stuff where a doc has been sued for involving people in a suicide case. No, I, I, I would agree. I haven't heard of that. And frankly, even if it had occurred, I take my chances. What jury is going to basically say, uh, you were in the wrong, uh, it's not going to happen. And, and the other thing is, where's the money? This is not a, it's not a criminal, uh, situation. So where's the money that's going to, uh, go back and forth between this. You're going to, where's the damages, your, your damages, your living. Yeah. Um, I, I guess exactly. Wrong, wrongful life, like wrongful life, sue for wrongful life. Um, let's see, uh, I'll come up with another case here in just a second. I've been piling these things up, Rick, and they're actually very interesting stuff. Here's one, which is so common. It happens all the time. And the emergency physician could have been involved in this one. Actually, this is a, a big verdict from Florida which has to do with a patient who is going through alcohol withdrawal was diagnosed correctly by the emergency department. They're sent to the floor. Alcohol withdrawal is a, um, is a life-threatening disease. You and I saw people with delirium tremens die when we were interns and residents. It does happen. Well, they sent the patient upstairs to the uh, ward. The patient was seeming a little better to the nurse and they demanded to leave. She signed the patient out AMA without referring to the uh, attending or any other physician or the house physician who was available. And of course, what do you think happened to the, to the patient? Well, something bad. Well, they walked out in front of a truck. I, I think that, again... You know, hospitals have to have some policies that if you're going to admit a patient with a disease entity, which we know affects their brain, they can't be signed out against medical advice unless some, some physician, the physician's service or someone else gets involved in doing a real evaluation to see if they're actually ready to be uh, sent home. All of us treated um, delirium tremens. Uh, with uh, benzodiazepines and that sort of thing. And they all went through short periods when they were a little better, only to find them 20 minutes later shaking and hallucinating uh, because they may have momentary uh, areas where they can speak to you does not mean in any way, shape, or form they're ready to go home. You know, I think the family that sued in this case, uh, that wasn't unreasonable. I mean, so they should not be released from the hospital till somebody in authority had done a real exam on the patient. Yeah, I think that that honestly is a bit of a stretch considering how careful we are in the emergency department setting regarding uh, 
these cases. But every time I hear a case that is like this, it brings to mind what we used to do when somebody would come in who was pregnant over 20 weeks. A person who came into the emergency department who was pregnant over 20 weeks was generally sent by the, the registration clerk or the triage nurse up to OB, where the OB nurses would check out this person with regards to fundamentally what's going on in their presidency, uh, pre pregnancy. They put a monitor on, listen to heartbeat and all that stuff. And then they would call the OBGYN, who may or may not be that of the patient, and discuss it with that uh, doctor. And the patient would be invariably, almost, sent home uh, without ever going back to the emergency department, without getting any emergency department discharge instructions, without being seen by the emergency physicians. And it was like this I, when I, I always challenged this and I said, this is not consistent with what we should be doing and what we do with every other patient. And is not this a really a, um, a, a risk for the CMS to come pay us a visit? Um, did they do something similar in your hospital, Greg? Yes, it, it, that started and we actually stopped it. Uh, because It the should question, be stopped. Of course, we stopped it because they... Our nurses were just waiting to hear that the patient was 20 weeks pregnant and that it didn't matter what the chief complaint was. They yes. were going to send them to labor and delivery. You know, if you've got a terrible headache and you're 20 weeks pregnant, you still have a terrible headache. Now, it could be the beginning of pituitary apoplexy. It could be a lot of things. Uh, what was very interesting is they also occasionally sent them up. Uh, if a woman went home and was home for a day or two after delivery, there is such a thing as postpartum problems, which, uh, you know, the nurses would check, say, well, they're not bleeding and they don't have a fever. That's not what this is about. They could have other disease entities going on that need to be looked at. So we stopped all of that. They had to well, at least stop and see us. And once they've checked them upstairs and they're cleared for being in active labor, then they come back down and be with us. Another one that they used to do was uh, if a woman was in an auto accident, they would take her up uh, immediately Remember, auto accidents, you can break your ankle. You can have a pneumothorax. You could have anything. But our nurses wanted to make sure that they were not going to get into precipitous labor based on that auto accident. And um, one of the things that made this change was we did have a woman sent home, uh, discharged from the OB-GYN service, uh, and uh, she did have a pneumothorax. She, they were right. She was not in active labor. That doesn't mean they don't get the usual exam that all auto accident patients get. You know, funny. And they sent her home too with a with a respiratory rate of thirty two. Well, that if you're seem to bother anybody, if you're still operating under this primitive nudnik policy, please, please, please stop it. The emergency physician needs to do a exam on these patients. The nurses up in OB 
are generally not in, uh, authorized to do a medical screening examination in the uh, context of EMTALA. Yeah. They go back to the ER, they get a chart, the ER doctor checks them over. It's kind of like viewing going to the OB department as going for a consult. They gave you a consult, which basically said she's not in labor. Okay, fine. Now you can come back and check her for any other kinds of things, a urinary tract infection, some other cause for her discomfort and distress, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Amen. How much time do we have, Rick? Because I've got at least a couple more little quick cases we can do. Uh, we probably have uh, no more than five minutes, Greg. Here it comes. Here it comes. You know, there is good news coming down the pike. You know, the Texas law, all these sorts of things, which really have helped us out. Uh, Michigan, again, helped us out in the case of the estate of LeBanc versus Agone, A-G-N-O-N-E. This is the Michigan Court of Appeals. And it said this, a standard of care expert must devote a majority of his or her professional time to the same specialty as the defendant and can only devote a majority of his or her professional time to one specialty. This came about because somebody showed up, who shows up in a lot of cases, who actually had his board certified in four different things. Well, they asked him a few questions about, how much time do you really spend doing this and this and this? And they asked for his books uh, from his office as to where he was, what his time was, they spent $10,000 researching this guy and basically made the appeal to the court, this guy cannot appear as an expert against Dr. X, Y, or Z uh, because he doesn't actually do that for a living. And I thought this was a wonderful decision. Because because you once did it, and because you once did a residency in it, and this uh, this doctor's 62 or 63 years of age, he hadn't been doing this type of practice for 25 years. And the court finally had the balls to stand up and say, you know what, if you don't actually, whether you've got a certificate on your wall and stuff like that, you can only declare one specialty. And once you've declared that specialty, if you're if you're practicing in that, fine. If you're not doing it, fine too. But uh, this took out a bad actor in the state uh, who was testifying in a lot of cases in four different disciplines, <laughs> and I think that was uh, I thought that was extremely useful. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there are. Lots of people who have internal medicine boards and emergency medicine boards, family medicine boards, and uh, emergency medicine. Most of the people who have PEDS boards and EM probably do more like PEDS EM than than just straight PEDS. But uh, yeah, I think that's a very uh, lucid and enlightening and good decision. Yes, and if your state, if you want your ASEP chapter to be doing something, uh Make sure that you go amicus on some of these cases where, where in your state where someone shows up who isn't actually doing it for a living. And I think that's, uh, that's important to do. Hey, Greg, you got a quick wine 
I got a quick wine. I got a very quick wine. Uh, by the way, that was an excellent wine we had the other night in uh, in Washington D.C. You know they have great wines in Washington D.C. because uh, you know your tax money uh, can can buy damn near anything. It's unbelievable. I'm going to point out to something that is uh, sort of come to the top of the list. A lot of the great California wines are getting too expensive. There's no question about it. You just it's wine. In two hours, it's urine. But there are, there are a couple of great vintners in Oregon who have basically taken over the show, price per bottle, that sort of thing. And at least two of them come from Phelps Creek, the 2014 Chardonnay Lynette and the 2014 Pinot Noir Beehive are uh, one obviously the white wine the chardonnay and the and the and this great red these are fantastic wines at at reasonable prices now i don't think i'm not aware that costco has these wines yet rick but uh, again costco by the way has very expensive wine if you want to pay for it but these are terrific wines and i would recommend recommend to anybody and they are probably 50% cheaper than comparable rated wines from the state of California. Okay, Gregory, that's uh, October 2017. I'll see you at the ASAP meeting, my friend. Yes, I will see you there too. And uh, uh, are, are you running a booth this year? No friend? booth, but Jerry and I are going to continue our uh, dog and pony show for the, about the 25th year in a row. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, listen, the Rick and Jerry show has become, I, I think the day that dies, those specialty folds up because <laughs> I've, I've never yeah. seen, I've never seen, there'll be 800 people in that room uh, just to hear what Jerry has to say to insult you. And, uh, you know, there's no question people show up to watch you two go at it. And it's, it's, uh, worth, it's worth the price of admission. Well, Gregory, uh, I hope you're there. I'm going to save a seat for you in the front row. Good, anyway, bye for now. See you next month. Bye-bye.